Welcome to the Open Apple Podcast, where we celebrate the Apple II. Whether you're a longtime user, a nostalgic visitor, or a newcomer to the community, join us as we share news and memories of Steve Wozniak's most famous personal computer. So then Woz says, if that's Jobs, who's in the monkey suit? <laughs> Oh, that's a good one. I'm going to have to That was great, that. wasn't it? That was really good, yeah. Can I use that at Kansas Fest? Absolutely. Sure. Great. Do I have to credit you? Um, yes, you do. Uh, uh, well, I mean, you did come up with it, so I guess that's understandable. True, true. <laughs> ah, so anyway. Uh, oh, yeah. Look, there's an audience here. Oh, hello. Um, hello. Welcome to another episode of the Open Apple Podcast. Today is uh, April 29th, 2012. This is episode 15 or 16? 15. I'm not sure. 15. Wow. Nice. Cruising right along here. And yeah. in fact, it's only been a couple of weeks since we last talked. We uh, had a fairly successful 20th anniversary celebration with the guys at uh, Brutal Deluxe. I think that uh, went well, and we hope you listened to that and enjoyed it. Yeah, it was great to finally have some foreign speakers on our show, as they mentioned. We certainly don't mean to be so... What would the word be? Eurocentric? Anglocentric? Yeah. Well, it's not like Andrew counted, so. <laughs> oh, he spoke Australian. <laughs> well, that's true, yeah. Right. Well, how have you been, Mike? Well, I've been all right. Um, got to hang out with Randy Brandt again this week. That was really cool. Man, um, you guys are just bosom buddies. Yeah, I think it's more like a uh, fanboy and uh, <laughs> and uh, concerned that I'm turning into a stalker guy or something. I don't know. I hope you're not just a drooling idiot when he shows up, unable to stammer out a word. I pretty much am, yeah. Wow, I'm sure he yeah. loves that. I know, he does. <laughs> uh, but, you know, I, I got a couple of my uh, – I got a, one of my Beagle Brothers uh, manuals autographed and um, – he left a, a, an Apple IIGS a ROM 3 that was actually used in the production of AppleWorks and some other Beagle Brothers applications, so that was pretty cool. And when you say and, he left it, you mean you he forgot it at your house? No, he actually gave it to me. Why? Yeah. No, he must have forgotten it. Why would he give it to you? I, well, I don't know. I, I don't think he's figured out what kind of guy I really am. But <laughs> The board itself had some battery damage, so it's going to require some repair, I think, before we can get it going. I'm hoping that we can uh, maybe trap Tony Diaz at Kansas Fest uh, to help with the repairs. It doesn't look too bad. Um, there are a couple of capacitors that were destroyed, and I think one IC that was uh, that's soldered to the motherboard. The the pins have been corroded. So. And how did um, all that happen? What did Randy do to it? Uh, he left it in storage and um, didn't uh, didn't change the battery out. So as you know, if if you're storing these old computers that. Uh, remember, if they have batteries and then these batteries are from 20 and 30 years old now and they're starting to, to leak and burst and, and when that happens, and, and the damage can be quite extensive. What an irresponsible owner. I can understand why you took that Apple II GS from him. I know. What a jerk, right? You'll be a much better owner. I will. <laughs> so anyway, Ken, how have you been? It's been a busy month, not only besides my usual Apple II escapades, but also some personal matters. My father got some new hardware installed recently. Oh, yes. Yeah, he had an aging system, and one of the components went bad. And it's a part you can't get new, only used. So I was actually going to give him mine, but it turns out that mine was a slightly different model and not compatible with what he needed. But he found the correct part? Yeah, it turns out my brother also had one, and he was still using it, but our dad kind of needed it more, you know, head of the mm. family business and all. Gotcha. So it's installed, it's up and running now, and it's not quite integrated into his workflow yet, but... It seems to be working pretty well, and I've been visiting him frequently to make sure that you know it's working the way it's supposed to. Unfortunately, it's not hardware I can remote log into because it only supports one user at a time. 
Well, that's a bummer. Yeah, but you know, I'm, I'm doing what I can to make sure that it's it's uh, what he needs. It's not a time-sharing system. Unfortunately not. Yeah, I'm sure my brother would have been happy to keep his, but... Well, good luck to him and his new hardware. Yeah, thank you. Sure. And besides that, I've also been working on... Now, don't take this the wrong way. I'm launching a new podcast. Oh, I'm heartbroken. Uh, you'll get over it. Uh, you're right. <laughs> See, just like that, you're over it. <laughs> Uh, this bodes nothing. So tell me about this. It bodes nothing for the Open Apple podcast. It does not affect it at all. It is completely unrelated to computers, computing, or the Apple II community. So I won't have to find a new co-host? Uh, you can if you want, but I would be surprised and hurt. Ah, okay. Well, then I won't <laughs> tell you. Thanks. I think we already tried that last month, didn't we? <laughs> we did. Yeah, that didn't work out. We banished him back to the Matrix. Yeah, he got a little uppity. Yeah, well, we put him in his place. That's right. I uh, know the new podcast, uh, first episode is aired on May 7th. It'll air every week after that. It's only about a half hour long, and it is aimed at volunteers and participants in an annual 50-mile charity walk that raises money for an awareness of multiple sclerosis. Well, good luck with that. <laughs> Thanks. Sure. It's actually been a lot of fun. I have never done a podcast before Open Apple, so I've been able to take all the skills and experiences I've had here and drop them into an entirely different context. And it's been actually a lot of fun. So you've just been shoplifting the skills here and taking them away. I'm sorry. I did I, I have to license them from you? Uh, yes, you do. Oh, well, <laughs> I'll, I'll double what I'm paying you to be my co-host now. Oh, great. Yay. <laughs> so that show probably won't appeal to anybody hearing this, but it's something I've had a lot of fun with. And uh, I'm looking forward to it. I already have about nine episodes in the can, actually. Wow, so you've been productive there. Yeah, like I said, it's completely different from this show. So it's much easier to put together. And fewer segments, shorter episodes, less editing, fewer tricks. And you actually care about the content there. <laughs> yes. <laughs> it's nice to actually have an investment in what you're talking about. Sure, yeah. Not that you would know. Not at all. No. I don't but, give a damn about anything. But our users might care, so let's try to serve up some content they actually do care about. All right. On the subject of the Apple II, we have an email from one of our listeners, Mike Willegal, who was responding last month to our comment that the same person, according to Nolan Bushnell, did the layout for both the breakout board and the Apple I. Mike Willegal writes in to say that it was neither Ron Wayne, as Nolan Bushnell said, or Steve Wozniak, as we said. It was actually a gentleman by the name of Howard Canton with whom Mike Willegal recently conducted an interview and posted it to his blog. Now, this kind of thing always interests me because these are the kind of details that when certain people who weren't necessarily superstars in the early computer industry, when they pass away, you know, if, if guys like Mike Willegal aren't out there doing these interviews and finding this, this information, when these people die or disappear and we can't find them anymore, those details just sort of vanish. I mean, it's lost knowledge. So I'm glad that, that Mike did this. Yeah, I'm glad that he spoke with this gentleman who appears to have been the layout designer responsible for early Atari and Apple PCBs, according to Mike's blog. Although it does look like there are two spellings of his name on here, Canton and Catton, so one N or two. Now that we've said both, we have our bases covered. Mike, for those who may not recognize the name, Mike Willegal is the creator of the Brain Board, which was sold at Kansas Fest 2011, which is an Apple One on a board. It's an expansion card that you put into your Apple II and it turns it into an Apple One. And uh, he will be at the Vintage Computer Festival that is occurring the first weekend in May. 
So if you're if you're hearing this in time, check it out. And if you're hearing it too late, be sure to check out online reports, perhaps on CSA2 or on Mike Willegal's blog at willegal.net and sign up for the next VCF. And if you're interested in a more accurate, I guess, if you want to call it that Apple One replica, he does make the Apple One Mimeo project, uh, which he announced recently. He, he has more PCBs available and he will have full kits available sometime this summer to buy. Excellent. Yep. And you know what? I know another person who's releasing a new product this summer. Oh, yeah? Who's that? Let's talk to him. Great. Hi, this is David from the Retro Computing Roundtable, and you're listening to the Open Apple Podcast. So our guest today is uh, David Finnegan. You may know him better as D. Finnegan. He runs the Mac GUI City website. David, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and your history with Apple and that sort of thing? Yeah, especially with a website like Mac GUI. This is not a Mac podcast, so justify oh, your presence here. That's right. <laughs> okay, yeah, and I realized that would, um, you know, cause a lot of people to be like, okay, what the heck, we're, we're Apple II here, not Mac. Well, the thing is, I started Mac GUI way back in 2004 as a site for customizing the Macintosh with different desktop pictures and icons and themes. I didn't actually receive an Apple II until later in 2004. I think around November I was given one by some friends, and naturally that uh, led into my interest for Apple II things, and so I, I put a little Apple II section onto my site. And since 2004, the site has just gotten bigger and bigger. I've just added more and more features, and it's, it's just ridiculous how much there is. In fact, I had forgotten until a few weeks ago there's a links list on my site. And so basically, it's it just covers everything that I'm interested in, Apple II and Macintosh. Now, I noticed that you have on there a looks what looks like a complete or nearly complete Usenet archive of all the, the Mac and Apple II user groups, uh, um, excuse me, Usenet groups. How did you come about getting a hold of that and implementing it on your website? Well, um, as part of the Mac GUI Vault project, which was uh, an Apple II and Macintosh archive, I learned about Usenet. This was around May 2009. And basically, I did a bit of research, and I found out that if you ask the right questions and the right people, um, that yeah, you can get you can get these archives. And so, um, it was in, around Thanksgiving of 2009. I contacted uh, Mr. David Wiseman at the University of, I want to say Toronto. It's it's one of the two, or Western Ontario. But anyway, and, and I told him that I, I would like to have a copy of the the old Usenet posts from the 1980s and 1990s, and I told him why, that I was going to be making this archive. And sure enough, uh, he sent me a link, and so it was a 2 gigabyte archive, and within a few weeks, in early December, I had uh, put them all online. And, and they're continuing to be updated. All right. So are you actually a NNTP portal where people can read and post Usenet messages? Yes, you can You can do everything. I've been adding features. Originally, when I first put the archive on my site in 2009, it was just read-only. Um, I added posting features a few months later, and now uh, the most recent feature I've added is that you can get, use, you can get uh, email subscriptions of the various Usenet groups. And you also have, it looks like, not only an extensive file archive, but also various suburbs is this like the GeoCities neighborhoods yeah it was it was an idea that i had a few years ago it didn't really take off but the idea was is that you could you could sign up for a macui account and then you could essentially get your own private uh forum and gallery and uh, a few other features like that and so you could start your own miniature community inside of macui cool 
And all this Usenet, the files, the suburbs, how much does all this cost? I mean, is there a charge to the end user? No, it's all free. Oh. I just spend money on it. So, what, so what's in it for you then? Basically, MacUI, first of all, it supports everything that I'm interested in. I'd, I'd say that's that's really what it is. It, it supports my personal interests, which uh, fortunately I find that other people are also interested in these sort of things. For example, uh, there's a photo gallery on the site because I like to upload all my photos. Well, why not let other people use it? Blogging is pretty popular. I have a blog on the site, and so I also allow other people to uh, post blogs too. It's just that sort of thing. So it's a nice sense of community. Right. And it's also how a lot of Apple II programmers work nowadays. They create something that they personally find useful, and then they decide to share it with the world. Yeah. So it's not the most popular site out there, but there are other people using it, and so I'm glad that there are. But of course, it would still be around even even if there were no one else, because, you know, I, I would still use it, obviously. <laughs> You'd still have a reader of one. Yes. I spent some time, uh, obviously, going through the website, and, and it seems to be really ex- extensive. How how much of a hard drive? Uh, how much hard drive space is this taking up on on your machines? I mean, I would think that the well, you said the Usenet archive alone is two gigabytes and growing. Oh, that was the original archive. It, it's much larger than that. Um, in fact, MacUI is hosted out of two data centers. The front end that you see, MacUI.com, is hosted on a shared hosting plan. And it's currently taking up somewhere around, I want to say, 15 gigabytes, because I've also got email and all the databases and everything else behind that. All the files uh, for MacUI Vault um, and the mirrors I've got are hosted on on another server in another data center, and those run into, I think, around 100 gigabytes or so. I haven't looked at them recently. They're fairly large. Mm Mm-hmm. Now, I want to take a step back for a second here. You said you got your first Apple II. Well, you said you got an Apple II in 2004. Was that your first exposure to the Apple II platform? Yes, it was an Apple II GS. So I I had known all about Macs at the time, but Apple II was completely new to me. I think off the top of my head, that makes you the newest Apple II user we've had on this podcast. Yes, I believe so. (laughs) Cool. What was it about the Apple II GS 18 years after it came out that intrigued you? Most people had well moved on by then. Were you a general retro computing enthusiast? Well, my first computer that I had was a Macintosh SE30, which when I had it, first got it, it was already about 10 years out of date or so. And I'd already learned a bit about programming in BASIC because I had received um, a few manuals and things like that which were really old. It was crazy. I was trying to use Microsoft Quick Basic on the Macintosh from reading these manuals that were, you know, from the 70s and 80s. So by the time I discovered the Apple II, I had already had a lot of experience with older computers, and so I was definitely interested in fiddling around with them and programming them. So if somebody had given you a Commodore 64, would that have become a part of your website? Um, It's hard to say. I'd only ever had Apple products, and today I only... I only have apples, so maybe. <laughs> and to what degree does your website support Apple One, Apple Three, or Apple Lisa? If you search hard enough, you can find some Apple Three and Apple Lisa stuff, but <laughs> no, not very much. It doesn't sound like it's a selling point for your site. No, I guess not. <laughs> <laughs> That's okay. We forgive you. Okay, thank you. Get what's new and exciting in retro computing with two news. 
Our leading news item this month is our guest. Mr. David Finnegan has released a new product of great interest to the Apple II community, and here to talk about it is Mr. David Finnegan. David? Hello. What is this that is currently tearing up the sales charts? Uh, I've decided to write a paperback book um, about everything that I know about the Apple II. So it's a pretty short book then, huh? No, it's actually uh, <laughs> it's actually pretty long. I'm just kidding. Okay. Yeah, it looks like it's, what, over 600 pages? Yeah, I don't want to give an exact count. The rough draft that I have um, on my computer at home is actually over 700 pages, but due to typesetting and I might change the margins, I don't want to uh, inflate it too much. And this is all original content? Yes. Wow, that's quite extensive. It's uh, 170,000 words. Uh, I started writing it in May 2010, and it's incredible because at first I had thought that uh, having a goal of 300 or 400 pages would be really nice, and and that would be impressive, but now it's just spiraled out of control. Fortunately, I'm done writing it, and we're into the reviewing process, but... um, it's it's been a lot of research. I've I've been referring on four or five different manuals and other books pretty heavily, and uh, and drawing on the knowledge from also from uh, the Apple II news groups and and various Apple II websites to help write it. So, what are some of your chapter titles? Um, so the first chapter is called "Meeting Your Apple," and because there are so many different models of Apple, and there's so many different peripherals and other things that go with it. Um, This chapter focuses on identifying which model of Apple, taking a look at the keyboard, uh, taking the lid off and and seeing what's inside. It talks about memory, uh, expansion cards, software disks, uh, printer. And then I thought it would be nice to um, include tips for buying an Apple, especially from eBay. And then the final part of the chapter is is for the uh, old people who are returning back to the world of Apple II. It has a bunch of improvements and uh, advances over the past 20 years, such as uh, accelerator technology, uh, storage systems, programming languages, and so on. When you say old users, you mean veteran users. Right, veteran users, yes, I should use the right term. The The book is, is aimed at three types of people. It's, it's aimed at people like me who had never used an Apple II before and are just discovering it. It's, it's aimed at people who who want the nostalgia factor, who had used an Apple II when they were younger and, and now want to get back into it. And then it's aimed at the third sort of person who's always been using the Apple II and just likes reading about the Apple II. So you're going to be covering, um, as well as the old older technology, um, you'll be covering stuff like the CFFA 3000 and the Uther card and things like that? Oh, yes, yes. Oh, good. In fact, um, Glenn Jones sent me an Ethernet card uh, about a year ago to help me write the chapter on networking, so I, I'm very glad that he did that. Um, there have been a number of people who have helped me out by sending me things and, and sending me copies of software so I can help write the book and, and they get their mention in. Now, do you have a, um, a date of publication in mind, a price point, anything like that? Um, I do have a price point. Now, the thing about setting a price is I realize that it's a very long book, um, and Typical books, if, if we're talking about a modern computer system of this length, would, would run around 40 to $50. But I realize it's a book talking about a very old computer system. So I, I've tried to balance out a price and between the two extremes, and I've come out with something around 25 to $30. I think the introductory price is going to be t- closer to $25. That's not bad at all. No. What was the second question? Uh, date of publication. Oh, yes. Date of publication. I'm hoping for a date in May, uh, just a few weeks. It's... It will probably be the later half of May because I haven't started typesetting yet, and I want to do that uh, next week. 
Now, are you working with a publisher, or are you self-publishing this? I happen to be self-publishing on Amazon.com. They have a subsidiary called CreateSpace, mm-hmm. and and it has different levels of hand-holding. Um, you can contract with a professional designer to have him or her lay out your book and do the cover, or if you feel like you know what you're doing, uh, such as me, you can submit your own PDF and your own cover, and it essentially becomes a print-on-demand service through Amazon.com. And what about uh, electronic format? I, I assume since it's going to be through Amazon, that it'll be available on the Kindle. Will there be an iPad version? Um, I haven't really looked into it. But of course, there is the possibility of selling an ebook. I, I can do that through Amazon.com, but I'm really focusing right now on uh, selling it as a paperback book because that's really the format that I prefer, and I think it's the format that is most convenient and that will last the longest. Now, I'm not ruling out an ebook, but I don't think that there will be an ebook right away. When you say that somebody like you doesn't need a lot of hand-holding, does that imply that you've written and or published before? No, but I'm having helpers. Um, for example, I'm, I'm having help with the cover design and, and the typesetting from, from people and family members who are knowledgeable with doing this sort of thing. For example, my mother um, spent a lot of time working at a, as, at a newspaper as a graphic designer, so she knows a lot about Adobe InDesign and Quark Express and, and all these layout programs. Hmm. That's very handy. Yes. I'm sorry, you, you said helpers, and, and I had this vision in my head of Santa's little elves running around a workshop. <laughs> well, I'm just Santa then. <laughs> okay. <laughs> just... Now, I think we've talked about another Apple II book that's coming up on this podcast before, that being by Dr. Steve Weirich with the history of the Apple II. How much overlap will there be with that project and your own book, David? Mr. Weirich has actually sent me an email, and, and he's asking me the same question, and I responded to him. I said, you're the history guru. So it's it's going to be very little uh, overlap. Um, if we may make a distinction, mine is going to be on the practical sides of things, uh, how to actually use it, how to program it, how to get things done, whereas uh, his book is going to be uh, history, like here's how things were and, and the story of the Apple II. Hmm. And how long do you expect your book to be current before there needs to be a second edition? At, at least a year, <laughs> but probably much longer. I, I'm not sure if there will if there will be a second edition. It's it's unlikely to be soon. Cool. Obviously, with a topic like Dr. Steve is covering, the history of the Apple II doesn't change that much. But since you're covering newer stuff, as you said, there's always going to be new hardware and new software for the Apple II, and there may be need for appendices or addendums that say, oh, this has come out since the first publication. Now you can do it this way, etc. Yeah, depending on the rate of change and, and how many new products we get in the Apple II world, I may well release a second edition. I'm just not sure when it will be. Will you be selling this book in person at Kansas Fest 2012? I'm glad you brought that up because unfortunately it looks like, no, I won't be able to, to attend. However, I do want to set up some sort of deal where... Um, someone who is attending buys the books from me, say, I don't even know how many I would sell, say at least 10 to 15 or maybe more, depending on how many people will attend. And this person takes care of, of selling the books to the attendees. They may well be signed copies even. Ooh, very nice. Yes. And I'm sure that can be arranged. I'm sure if you happen to know anybody on the Kansas Fest committee, they can put you in touch, etc. Oh, yeah, I'll look around. Uh, but your mention of autographed copies reminds me of a question I meant to ask. It's rare for us to see a new book or documentary about retro computers that wasn't funded through Kickstarter. Did you ever consider using that medium? 
I have heard about it, and um, I've looked into some of the other projects that are using it, but no, I, I didn't feel that there was a need to uh, ask people for donations. So, no, I, I haven't considered it. Well, one nice thing about Kickstarter, a lot of people are using it not necessarily for donations, but actually as a pre-order engine. For example, David Grealish put his book on Kickstarter before it was available, and anybody who donated, I think at the $25 level or higher, got a copy of his book. So you might have used Kickstarter to gauge initial interest, for example, and supply yourself with that startup capital at the same time. Ah, yes, I hadn't thought of that. Well, talking about um, interest in it, it's it's funny because I only posted the announcement um, a week and a few days ago, and I've already gotten at least 10 emails, I'd say, uh, asking uh, when can I pre-order or, or is it available you know, for uh, purchase yet? And unfortunately, I have to tell people no, but I think it's really encouraging that there are people already who are very interested in buying the book, even though it hasn't been published yet, but it will be soon. We started this conversation by you saying that you are publishing a new book about the Apple II. Did we actually get the title of it? Ah, no, we didn't. The New Apple II User's Guide. The New Apple II User's Guide. Great. Yes. Well, I look forward to seeing that on a store shelf near us or on Amazon.com. Well, it seems to be a budding market of retro computing publications because there's a new one that just hit the Kindle, and that would be the Best of Creative Computing Volume 3. This was put together by Kevin Savitz, as far as I know. At least he's the one that's been marking it online. And it looks like this is a collection of content from a classic magazine. Mike, can you tell us a bit more about that? Creative computing was a lot more... It wasn't uh, specific, I think, to any one flavor of home computer at the time. As I recall, there it, it did seem to go a lot heavier towards the Commodore um, market, but there were plenty of Apple... Uh, specific items in there. Uh, it was never, at the time, uh, there were just so many Apple specific magazines that, that I focused on that I didn't need to pick up creative computing. So it wasn't one that I read on a regular basis. Uh, I do know that at one point, if you're into computist at, at all, you know that, um, the publisher, Charles Haight of, of computist magazine, he kind of got into it with, you know, the publishers of Nibble and, and several others. And one of them was this, uh, creative computing about whether they should run ads for uh, bit copy programs like Locksmith and, and even his own computer's magazine. And so when, when creative computing went under, they published a sort of a sarcastic eulogy to the magazine. I just pulled up the original press release and there's over 120 articles in this ebook. And this collection is produced with the uh, permission of the original publisher. And a portion of the proceeds from the sales of this Kindle book will go to the New Jersey-based nonprofit Beyond the Walls, which is an organization working to improve the lives of the poor and disadvantaged. Cool. Yeah. It's not necessarily a uh, topically relevant nonprofit, such as the Computer History Museum in Mountain View, California, but certainly a worthy cause, it seems like. David, were you a fan of this magazine? Or I guess since you're, you're, you were sort of a, a latecomer, so a 1978 book about really retro computers or back then they were known as cutting edge might have been before your time yeah I, I didn't read creative computing so what were you reading do you have any favorite retro mags no i don't think so um i've got MacWorld, but that's clearly not retro that's that's the only computer magazine that i get so i'm all for hearing that people are readers of idg publications go you yay <laughs> 
Cool. Well, I have not picked up, obviously, David's book yet, which isn't out, and I haven't picked up Kevin's book, but he says that there will be additional volumes, including volume one and two. But for now, the first volume is volume three. Kind of got a Star Wars thing going on there. Yeah, no kidding. Well, there probably won't be a movie version of these books being produced anytime soon, but there is a movie version of The Life and Times of Steve Jobs, not based on the autobiography that Isaacson came out with last year. But they've done some of the initial casting for the leads. Yeah, it looks like uh, Ashton Kutcher is going to be Steve Jobs in this uh, biopic. Ashton Kutcher of that 70s show? Of that 70s show of The Butterfly Effect and other movies you've never heard of. And don't forget, Dude, Where's My Car? That's right, yeah. So, and there's been some controversy about that from, from Apple fans. Um, I don't know. I've seen him do a lot of stuff and he, I don't, he seems like, I know he's not a horrible actor. I, I think his thing is, has been to this point comedy. So I don't know how well he's going to do a, a drama like this, but you know, I, I'm not going to dismiss him out of hand. Hmm. Now, who would either of you cast as Steve Jobs? Noah Wiley did a great job in Pirates of Silicon Valley. I mean, there's, uh, I wouldn't frown on them returning to the source. Huh, that's interesting. Remember when Noah Wiley actually tried to give the keynote at Macworld a couple years ago? No, I didn't know that. Oh, yeah, it was just a prank that Apple pulled. Instead of Steve Jobs coming out in his usual attire, it was Noah Wiley, and he started trying to give the keynote, and finally Steve Jobs came out and pulled him off stage. <laughs> yeah, there'll be a link to the YouTube video of that in the show notes. Interesting. <laughs> And what about you, Mr. David? Any particular preferences if you were in charge of casting this movie? I don't really know how someone could, could be casted as Steve Jobs, so no, I don't. I have no idea who <laughs> I would pick. He is just a man larger than life. He cannot be portrayed. Who was the guy in Pirates of Silicon Valley? That was Noah Wiley. Oh, <laughs> well, see, there you go. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> And they've also cast Steve Wozniak. That will be played by Josh Gad, who is an actor unknown to me, but I'm told that his largest credit to date is in the Broadway musical, The Book of Mormon. Yeah, I'm not familiar with uh, Josh Gad. Probably most people aren't. I don't think many people get to Broadway as often as they get in front of their boob tube. I mean, if you do a Google image search on Josh Gad, Woz, there are tons of side-by-side photos and if you do the same thing with Ashton Kutcher, I can kind of see the resemblance between him and younger Steve Jobs. But Josh Gad and Waz, I okay, they both have really brilliant smiles. But it, other than that, it seems like a bit of a stretch. Yeah, I, I think it'll come down to performance for him. I mean, if he can if he can pull off pretending to be Wozniak, I doubt that people will hold the resemblance thing against him. Yeah, it must be challenging to cast a film like this because you're not only looking for resemblance, but also performance you can't just look like steve wozniak you have to act like steve wozniak and if you can only get one of those two which one do you go for right now this is going to be a big budget film that appears on the silver screen right this isn't like a made for tv movie says it's an indie film they got ashton kutcher in an indie film it seems to be yeah huh of course i guess once you sort of reach a a level of fame and fortune you can choose to do indie films (laughs) is that what tim schaefer did with double fine and kickstarter (laughs) <laughs> maybe so i don't know hmm. yeah if, i i don't know if you're gonna raise three million dollars for a project just how indie are you i'm guessing that kuchar's usual usual paycheck is bigger than three million dollars <laughs> i would guess let's see mike you have an item here on the spreadsheet called the lost steve jobs tapes there have already been lost steve jobs interviews that were played to death 
upon his passing, perhaps that was a poor choice of words, but what are the lost Steve Jobs tapes? A uh, fast company. Is that an adjective, like a company that's fast? I, I would guess so. Uh, or, or are you actually saying that's the name of the company? That's the name of the website that, that posted the article on the lost Steve Jobs tapes. Oh, I see. So, th- so they could be a fast company called Fast Company? Uh, quite possibly, Okay, yes. I'll shut up now. So uh, the article is by um, somebody named Brent Sch- Schlender. Sorry, Brent. Um, and he found 36 hours of interviews uh, that he did with Steve Jobs from 1985 to 1996, mostly when he was away from Apple. So this would be his years in the wilderness at Next and, and Pixar. If you buy their iPad app, Fast Company's iPad app, you can actually hear excerpts from these tapes. Only excerpts? What if you want to hear the whole tape? Um, it doesn't look like they, at this time, are publishing the unedited versions. Hmm. Um, but there's there's quite a lengthy article on, on the FastCompany.com website where they, they talk about um, where these uh, tapes came from and sort of Jobs' philosophies at the time and the um, his purchase and, and re reimagining of Pixar and, and kind of the failure of Next and, and then his return to Apple. It looks like you can read excerpts uh, from the tapes. I'm looking at the website right now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and this article that Mike mentioned is just shy of 5,000 words, which is about 20 pages printed. So that's quite extensive. I suppose the interviewer already did the dirty work of having to listen to all 36 hours for us and excerpted the spectacular parts for this article rather than just giving us all the raw media. Well, we all remember Steve Jobs fondly, and there are a couple of other individuals that now, unfortunately, remembering fondly is all we can do. We had a couple of passings in the community recently. Stan Marks, who was a member of the Kansas Fest Planning Committee in the late 90s and was an active Apple II user and member of our various online communities, such as on Genie and Delphi. He passed away on April 22nd, very unexpectedly, at the age of 60. He leaves behind a wife that he met at Kansas Fest and their young son, Donations can be made to the Boy Scouts of America in his memory. That information is on kansasfest.org with a link in the show notes. Mike, I think Stan's last time at K-Fest was circa 2003, 2004. I'm not sure if you had the opportunity to meet him. Yeah, I'm kind of embarrassed to say I didn't actually know who Stan Marks was when the, the news of his death broke. I had to go look that up. I think that's because his last Kansas Fest was at Avila and your first Kansas Fest was at Rockhurst. Right. Yeah, I didn't show up till 2005. Yeah, he wasn't very active in the last few years, but he was definitely still a friend to the community. He befriended us on Facebook. He was a subscriber on the KFest email list. If something came up like Hurricane Katrina, he'd let us know that he was alive and well. When Joe Cohn passed away, he chimed in with his own memories of that Apple II legend. So even though he may not have been the in-your-face-every-day kind of guy that Ryan Suinaga was, you know, he was still a a good guy and one of the old guard, and I'm sorry to see him go. And another death that um, might not hit quite so close to home for Apple II users, uh, Jack Tremel passed away on April 8th, 2012. He was 83. And for those that don't know, Jack uh, founded Commodore Business Machines as a typewriter repair shop uh, in 1953. He actually bought a, a shop in, in the Bronx, paid $25,000, uh, and named the place the Commodore Portable Typewriter. And they started making um, adding machines and calculators um, and later got into, of course, the home computer business. 
And at one point, and I'm not, I'm not as familiar, obviously, with the history of Commodore and Atari as I am with Apple, but I know at one point he left Commodore and bought Atari from uh, Warner Brothers. Um, and I think that it was, I don't know if it was a mutual parting of ways or if there was some acrimony there, um, but he certainly had uh, a heavy influence on, on the early home computer business. Yeah, and he basically, was he more like Steve Jobs or Steve Wozniak or both? Was he the businessman or the inventor? I think he was very much a businessman. He was, and he was sort of the, um, uh, Carrington put it well uh, on the Retro Computing Roundtable when he said, for Jack Tremel, uh, uh, business was war for huh. him. So, I mean, it was all about uh, business and money. And I, I know that his philosophy was, we need to put as many cheap computers into the hands of everyone that we can as possible. Hmm. Jack is sort of the classical American success story. He was born in Poland in 1928 and emigrated here in the late 30s. You know, established himself as a true American entrepreneur. He started a small business, built it up from nothing, and ended up publishing one of, not one of, he published the most popular personal computer of the beginning of the entire computer revolution. He he immigrated here in November '47 because he was he was a, actually he was an Auschwitz survivor. Oh my God! Seriously? Yeah. Wow. Wow. I mean, yeah, he really overcame a lot. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's really impressive, and my hats off to him. Now I've never actually. I, I hope that uh, this confession may elevate me in the eyes of Apple II users and denigrate me in the eyes of Commodore 64 users, but I've never actually used a Commodore. Hmm. Have you, Mike or David? Nope. I have, um, just because when I started kind of collecting, uh, yeah, I've always been an Apple II user, but I sort of collected a little bit on the side. People started giving me, oh, here, do you want this? And I ended up with a, a basement full of pets and, and um, Commodore 64s. And I even had a bunch of uh, bunch of the old CBM adding machines and calculators at one point. So you are a jack-of-all-trades. Well, I, I, I mostly just kind of booted them up once or twice and went, oh, that's interesting. And eventually I gave the collection to somebody. Because they didn't have the nostalgia factor for you that the Apple II did. Right, exactly. Now, there's a story that was told in 2007 when Woz and Jack met for the first time ever at the Computer History Museum celebrating the Commodore's 25th anniversary that supposedly Jobs and Woz went to Commodore to try to sell the Apple II. Yeah, I, I, again, I, I'd have to read up on the details. I can't remember if Apple was trying to sell themselves to Commodore or Commodore was trying to buy Apple. Uh, but for whatever, for whatever reason, it, it didn't happen, but they certainly had a, there was still a close relationship between those companies for a while. I mean, obviously Apple was buying the 6502 from Moz, which was owned by Commodore. Uh, at one point, Apple uh, actually hired Chuck Peddle, the, the inventor of the 6502, to come work, uh, on the Apple III and some other projects that, that didn't work out. And he went back to Commodore, but, um, yeah, there was, there was definitely some crossover there. Well, here's what the Computer World article says. It says, Back in the dawn of the PC era, uh, Commodore International rejected a proposal from the Apple founders to resell the Apple II computer. Well, there you go. Yeah, I seem to recall that article, and I think Evan Koblenz wrote in with some corrections, and I don't remember if we finally got it to his liking. But, yeah, that was definitely some version of that story told at the Computer History Museum. Yeah, and then it goes on to say, Commodore rejected the idea, preferring instead to develop its own simpler, lower-cost, black-and-white machine without the pizzazz of Apple II. 
But the Commodore 64 wasn't black and white, was it? No. I didn't think so. Was... I think they were talking about the PET. Oh, I see. Gotcha. And what does PET stand for? Personal, uh, personal electronic transactor. <laughs> I think that was, I think that was one of those uh, um, retcon uh, acronyms. Oh, I see. Uh, a backronym, I think it's called. Yes. Gotcha. <sighs> well, now that we've turned off all our Apple II listeners with talking about right. C64, let's get back to our roots and talk about a classic Apple II game, Prince of Persia, as we brought up last month. The source code was rediscovered by the creator, Jordan Mechner's father, who found it in a box full of floppies in a closet and shipped it back to Jordan. Development since then, Jordan wanted to rescue the source code off the aging magnetic medium, so he enlisted the help. Well, actually, before we get to that revelation... I have my own question for Jordan because he was at PAX East, which Andy Malloy and I went to this uh, past April in Boston. It was a video game convention at which Mr. Mechner, or Mechney, if you are in the French, uh, gave the keynote. And I asked him about that source code. You recently found the original Prince of Persia source code. Yes. <laughs> but even before that, the game was... Uh, decompiled and all the assets extracted and poured to Commodore 64. Yes, yeah, somebody did that. Mr. Sid, yeah. Yes, I, I've never met him, but I'm, I stand in awe of that achievement. It's like, uh, yeah, he took a, a you know, basically an assembly, you know, machine code dump of the Apple II and somehow ported it, yeah. So given that even that is possible without the original source code, I understand the historical and sentimental value of the source code, but is there any functional value to it? And also, are you going to be releasing it to the public? Well, first question is, is there anything on those three and a half inch discs? Uh, because, you know, discs degrade. I mean, I've, I have a box of five and a quarter inch floppies that have been sitting, you know, you know, for 30 years, and they run fine. I was able to copy them over. Just found these three and a half inch discs last week. You know, they've been sitting in the back of my dad's closet. I had actually given up on ever finding the Prince of Persia source code. I just thought I'd never saved it, whatever. It was on a hard drive. But indeed, I did copy them onto three and a half inch discs in 1990. I must have because that's my handwriting on the labels. <laughs> you know, and uh, so, so yeah, so a guy named Jason Scott uh, goes by the handle of Text Files, who is who's basically devoting his life to archiving digital materials, is going to fly out. Uh, ten days from now, and he's gonna—he's bringing all kinds of equipment that people have donated, because you know you can actually ruin a disc by putting it in. I didn't know this. If you put it into the wrong kind of drive to try to read it, that act itself can erase it. And if the disc is really fragile, that could be the difference. So I'm not touching those discs until Jason shows up with his you know bag of tricks, and we'll see. Hopefully, you know the Prince of Persia source code is still on those discs and it's still readable. But as to what good is it, you know, it's kind of limited. I mean, for me, it'll be interesting to see. You know, something that I stared at for four years again. You know, I, I can see if I commented my code properly and, <laughs> and then, you know, all the, all the really, you know, lame hacks that I, that I did. You know, people can find them and point them out to me. Uh, so, yeah, I really hope we can, we can extract it. And you'll be releasing that? Abs absolutely. Great. Yeah, it's... it's uh, <laughs> thank you. Thank you. So as you heard, he did enlist the help of Jason Scott and Jason, who happened to have gone to high school with uh, Mechner's younger brother, who was the model for the actual Prince of Persia. Uh, Scott enlisted the help of the Apple II community's own Tony Diaz, he of 16 Sector, Syndicom, and Kansas Fest. Uh, Jason, Tony, and Jordan all met in California 
and with a bevy of Apple II hardware and software and did successfully salvage the Apple II source code for Prince of Persia and posted it online that night to github.com. If anybody wants to access the original code for Prince of Persia, it is now open source. Cool. Either of you ever actually play Prince of Persia? Oh, yes. In fact, that was uh, one of the first games that I remember playing when I uh, first got that Apple IIGS system. So, yeah. So even all the way in 2004, you're thinking, finally, I can play this 1989 classic. (laughs) Well, I don't think I'd ever heard of it before. Oh, it was just part of the collection that was bequeathed to you? Yeah. um, I got this Apple IIGS system, but of course, I also got two disc boxes full of five and a quarter inch discs and then then a shoebox full of uh, three and a half inch discs. So I was pretty much set to go for quite a while. All sorts of games. Hmm. What about you, Mike? Um, this is one that I actually... I only played this on the PC. I, I, n- I never played the Apple II version. I'm not sure I played the Apple II. I know I played it on Super Nintendo and on Xbox 360 because they updated it and released it as a downloadable game a couple of years ago. Yeah, that game appeared on a lot of different platforms. Yeah, I even remember playing uh, the sequel, Prince of Persia 2, on a Macintosh. Uh, I think it was a Mac LC way hmm. back when. Yeah, when they did the first Xbox game back in the early 2000s, they wanted to include the original Prince of Persia as an Easter egg. So Mechner went looking for his Apple II source code everywhere so they could build a little emulator around it and hide it in the game. And that's when he first realized that he had lost the source code. And he asked everybody that he'd ever worked with on any version of the game if they had the Apple II source code, and nobody did. So finally, he ended up taking the Mac source code, and they used that for the Xbox Easter egg. But now now he has the Apple II source code. And now everyone has it. Yes. Which has led to some interesting discussions on um, Compsys Apple II about possibly porting it to the 2GS. Oh, yeah, and cheat codes, too. I was reading about those. That's right in the J-Simulator. What about the J-Simulator? Brendan Robert, the guy that does the J-Simulator, built in, uh, modified the source code and, and built in some cheat codes. Oh, I saw that on CSA2, but I think he posts under the username Blu-ray. Yeah. And I didn't recognize the name. Yeah, he... It's blurry. Oh, right. I thought there was an extra R in there somewhere. Yeah, apparently he made us that, like, if you left-click an enemy, he dies, or if you right-click a gate, it opens, or if you right-click an empty spot on the screen, you teleport there. That was two days ago, uh, and since then, it looks like he's got quite a few more cheat codes. He's got um, left-clicking on a gate opens it, Left clicking on an enemy kills him dead and usually works on the first try now. That's great. I have to wonder if he's trying to purposely eliminate any and all challenge from this game. <laughs> That's the whole point of cheat codes, isn't it? So you can finish the game. Yeah, pretty much. He should have created a cheat code where you right click on the game and it ends. Congratulations, you win. <laughs> like, oh, let's play it again. Ha! Ah, I won again. Undefeated. I was kind of interested, though, in the, the 2GS port talk it's probably just idle talk you know but it would be interesting to see something like that because i know that i know how much time and effort the wolf 3d project took and i don't know if there's anyone out there that's willing to dedicate that much time to putting prince of persia on the 2gs but sure would be nice to have a new game like that what would the advantage of a 2gs model be i mean you'd have to to take advantage of the 16-bit architecture you'd really want to recreate all the art and sound so if it's just an 8-bit-looking game running a 16-bit environment, what's the point? Well, yeah. That's what I'm saying. I think it would take a lot of effort, but it would be cool. Well, if you know any artists or musicians who are looking to do some work for free. 
Alex Lee says, not making any promises, but someone I know has been looking at the source to aid in a possible 2GS version, so you never know. That'd be cool. Now, obviously, even though the game has been open source, it can still be copyrighted. And the Prince of Persia franchise certainly is, because they're still making a variety of media. In the last 10 years, we've seen graphic novels and live-action movies. So, If somebody wanted to actually release a modification on the original Prince of Persia game, would there be copyright issues? Would they have to seek permissions? Well, I'm actually trying to call up Jordan's blog right now because I, I read somewhere, and I think it's on his blog, where he basically, he said, you can do whatever you want with this. Could you, could you instead of calling up Jordan's blog, you just call up Jordan? Uh, I wish. Just get him on the line. I'm sure he'd be happy to answer this for us. Sure. Great. He's got nothing better to do than to sit there and wait for our call. Well, while you look that up, I'll go on a brief tangent and mention that this is actually the second release from Jordan in the last month. At PAX, he talked about the first game he ever wrote, and everybody's like, oh, it's Karatika or Karatika. And he said, no, actually, it was never released. I sent it to Broderbund, and they saw the potential, so they encouraged me to continue writing other games, but they never released that first game, which was kind of like how Asteroids, you're a triangle-pointed ship firing at rocks and my game you are a triangle shaped ship shooting at bouncing colored balls he had walls around the screen in his game so there was physics where the balls would bounce off so you were in an enclosed space and he says that the unoriginality and the title of the game may have contributed to its lack of release that title being the wonderfully evocative and a creative and exciting title death bounce <laughs> The Bounce of Death. Well, people at PAX wanted Death Bounce. Somebody from the audience even gave him $5 and said, here's toward your Kickstarter to get Death Bounce released. And Jordan was afraid to do a Kickstarter because he said, if it fails, then that means I'm a failure again. And if it succeeds, that means I actually have to create and release Death Bounce. So here's the original Death Bounce for free. Just take it, do whatever you want. Nice. So somebody create an online emulator. You can play Death Bounce there, I think. It's been added to the virtual Apple online emulator. And there is talk of an iOS port. Anyway, back to you. What's up with Prince of Persia? Oh, so this is actually from the Wired.com uh, article um, on the rescue of the source code. Uh, down near the end, it says that uh, this means, and this is Jordan speaking, this means that anybody out there who is curious about the Prince of Persia source code can look into it, they can dig into it, modify it. Now, it doesn't say anything about releasing it, but if you look at the source code itself, it's it, all the copyrights belong to Jordan, not to Broderbund. So I, I assume that means that he has, you know, final say over whether you can release something that you make from that code or not. Well, on GitHub, he's got a license file and it says, look at the readme. So I'm looking at that right now. Well, I know he didn't take anybody to court when the Commodore 64 port of Prince of Persia was released just this past fall. Yes, it says, as the author and copyright holder of the source code, I personally have no problem with anyone studying it, modifying it, attempting to run it, etc. Please understand that this does not constitute a grant of rights of any kind in Prince of Persia, which is an ongoing Ubisoft game franchise. Ubisoft alone has the right to make and distribute Prince of Persia games. So there you go. There it is. So you can play around with it on your own, but you can't release anything. So if you get your hands on Apple IIGS version, we won't ask you where it came from and don't offer to share it. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> because Ubisoft is famous for their love of DRM and suing people for copyrights. Well, maybe we'll just have to release it under a different name like Prince of Iran. 
<laughs> Prince of Arabia. There you <laughs> well, it looks like we have a couple more games to talk about this month. This is quite the gameful episode. I guess news-wise, it was probably a slow month for the Apple II community. And that gave us more time to have fun. So let's talk about Leisure Suit Larry. Kickstarter. There it is again. It's uh, not being used for Death Bounce. It's not being used for the new Apple II user's guide. But it is being used by Al Lowe, creator of the original Leisure Suit Larry, which was a point-and-click adventure game of the early 80s in the grand tradition of King's Quest, Space Quest, and Police Quest, where you were charged with getting Larry Laffer to lose his virginity and to probably, in the sequels, bag as many women as possible. It was incredibly sexist and uh, definitely for mature audiences, even if the humor wasn't necessarily mature. Al Lowe has been inspired by the likes of Tim Schafer and Brian Fargo and others, and is on Kickstarter to recreate Leisure Suit Larry the Original. Not a sequel, but a remake. Same game, same mechanics, all new arts and sound. Looks like the game is coming out for Mac and PC. I don't see any mention of tablets, and the game should come out in August of this year. It mentions a touchscreen interface, so it does seem to imply that there will be some sort of tablet version. Okay. I don't see the words iOS or Android mentioned. I do see when you pledge at least $15, you can get the uh, PC version, either standalone or through Steam, or you can get it through the Mac, but it will not be available through the Mac App Store. It'll be a direct download. All right. Well, I've got the platforms. It was hidden under a a collapsible fact question. Uh, It says... Okay, had a long talk with the programmers, and this is what we're able to do uh, to give you guys with the 500,000 pledge. Ready? One, PC. Two, Mac. Three, iPad. And four, Android tablets. So there you have it. Ah, so that's why I didn't come up when I tried to do a find, is because it was collapsed. Right. Hmm. Uh, This closes in 69 hours, so it'll probably be closed by the time you hear this podcast. However, it has met its half a million dollar goal. And the Kickstarter page will continue to be available, which and it's a cool video to watch because it opens with Al Lowe using an Apple II, and you can see it multiple times throughout the video. So he's definitely somebody who remembers his roots. Now, I grew up playing Leisure Suit Larry. I had to hide the box in a drawer where my parents wouldn't stumble across it. Although, in hindsight, if they had found it, I doubt they would have been that upset. I, I seem to recall it being kind of fun and funny. I didn't really feel it was all that risque. But Al Lowe has this neat editorial out about how adventure games were funny in a way that modern games are not. Because back then, you weren't just problem solving when playing games. You were problem solving just to boot up the darn computer with your auto exec and config sys files. And nowadays, computers are so easy that people expect their games to be easy too. And I think it is true that games have gotten easier. But he's talking about games not being clever or witty anymore. And he wants to return to that. And this new Leisure Suit Larry is a step in that direction, he says. Do either of you guys agree with Al Lowe that games aren't as challenging or as thought-provoking nowadays as they used to be? I would definitely agree they're not as ridiculously hard as they used to be. Thought-provoking, not quite so, not quite so sure about that. I, I enjoy the storylines in, in plenty of games. Yeah, it's hard to look at the old Apple II games and see the equivalent of like Mass Effect, for example. Right. Yeah, I, I I don't know about the humor. I, you know, certainly games like Portal and Portal Two, where you had Glados insulting you through the whole game, uh, I found that to be pretty funny. Yeah, and that was a puzzle game too, not a point and click, but definitely something that made you think while getting entertained as well. So it may not be as common, but that may just be more a, a side effect of of having a much larger game market out there with many more titles and 
to choose from. Mike, would you have considered yourself an Apple II gamer growing up? Um, yeah, a little bit. I, I mostly mostly cracked the games and then played them once or twice just to make sure that it, it worked and to see kind of what the game was like. I was more interested in the code that ran behind them. But there were a few games where after I cracked them, like like um, Wasteland, for example, uh, that was one that my, a friend handed me and said, I can't copy this. Um, and so I cracked it and then started playing it and really got into it. And wow, this is a great game. And so there were a few uh, games like that. But they tended to be, the games that I played tended to be longer ones that took forever to finish, you know, the, the Ultima series and that sort of thing. Would you consider yourself a gamer nowadays? Um, I, I was until the fall of 2008. Yeah. Was there something that happened? There were two games, there were three games that came out that I was really looking forward to. And, and actually, one of them was Fallout 3. Uh, which, you know, is, was a part of the series that sort of spawned from Wasteland in a roundabout way. And another one was, there was a Grand Theft Auto 4, and there was a third game that I can't remember. And they were all just, uh, I hate to say it, but they were all just kind of bug-filled pieces of junk. And I kind of sort of gave up and said, I, what I did was I, I kept the games and said, well, I'll just wait for the patches to come out and fix it. Only the patches never got to the point where they fixed the bugs. And I never went back to gaming. Wow. I know, I know that's kind of a weird thing. It wasn't an intentional, I'm, I'm storming away from, from gaming, darn you. It just, it was, I just kind of got interested in doing other things and never really went back to it. I can see that. If you ever do decide to get back in, into it, I would suggest not only these big budget indie games that are up here on Kickstarter, but also smaller indie games uh, that you can find on Steam and on Xbox Live, things that you can download for 5 to 10 bucks. There's actually a lot of creative stuff coming out, like um, anything by Zaboid Games or the uh, games like Chime or even Portal. I know that's a big budget game, but you can download the original Portal for 10 bucks on your Xbox. If I had an Xbox. Right. You know, if any, if any of our listeners want to buy Mike and an Xbox, <laughs> go ahead and launch your own Kickstarter. We'll much appreciate it. Uh, only if you want my wife to come to your house and kick your butt. <laughs> <laughs> Is that one of the rewards? <laughs> it might be. Yeah. <laughs> no, actually, I've kind of you're you're talking about the, the sort of the indie games and stuff, and it occurred to me that in a way, I kind of have gotten back into gaming, but not not the serious hardcore PC, uh, you know, RPGs or or first person shooters or anything like that. It's it's been through the iPad and, and casual gaming. You've become a casual um, gamer. I kind of have, yeah, through through the the social gaming, the um, uh, words with friends and and uh, social chess especially. Are you playing uh, Farmville? I've never played and will never play Farmville. I will not water your sheep. <laughs> Damn you. I didn't know you were on words with friends. I just started that last week having gotten my own iOS device for the first time in the past month. I will have to send you a challenge. Great. See how the JuiceGS editor and the JuiceGS writer match up. What about you, David? What are you playing nowadays? Uh, basically nothing. Because um, <laughs> all, all my free time is spent getting this book out. Um, though you were mentioning words with friends, um, I, I only just recently installed that on my iPod, Like I think about two weeks ago. Um, I played a few rounds with some guy and just thought, eh, not, not too exciting. <laughs> Yeah, I'm actually not that great at games like Scrabble, and I'm disappointed that Words with Friends is only two-player. You can't play three or four-player with this. Yeah, I can kind of see the point, though. I mean, it's it's sort of the, you know, you play and then you wait for the other person to play. It could get frustrating waiting for three or four people to take all take their turns because you're not sitting at a table, you know, right. playing. This is sort of whenever I have a few minutes, I'll make my turn. I mean, I did have that problem on Facebook with a similar game where you'd have a four-player game and one person would keep stalling. Right. So 
you go player A, player B, player C, and then nothing. Right. What about draw something? Have either of you played that on iOS? Have not. Yeah, it seems to be the latest game tearing up the charts. It's kind of like Pictionary, and I'm just a little afraid, kind of like why I never used chat roulette. You you never know what you're going to see. But if you want to see something really cool on iOS, it looks like they're remaking Repton. Uh, they are. Actually, they remade this game a couple of years ago, and for some reason I, I just noticed it the other day. It came out in, I think, uh, 2010 or 11, um, and it's for – it looks like it's only for the iPhone. So if you buy it on the iPad, you're not going to get the – the iPad experience, which you'll get is the double-sized iPhone app, so it probably won't look that good. Um, but it's only 99 cents in the iTunes store, and there's there's actually um, there's a, a YouTube video that has about a minute and a half of the gameplay, and it looks it looks fairly um, um, faithful to the original. Now, for those that don't know, Repton was a, a port or a a, a version a home computer version of Defender. Uh, it was released in 83 for the Apple II, the Atari 8-bit, and Commodore 64 computers uh, by Sirius Software. And it has a five-star customer review on uh, the iTunes store. Yep, the people who have bought it seem to like it a lot. It looks like there are two different Reptons. There's the one you mentioned, which is the 1983 Defender game, which this iOS is a port of. And then there's another game that came out in 1985 from superior software for the bbc micro and acorn electron right and that game has nothing at all to do with this one huh also nothing to do with reptar which is a character from a nickelodeon cartoon just saying all right uh, we had a question last month from an ios user who has been on this podcast brian weiser asked how does active gs the fta app which doubles as an Apple II emulator for iOS, look on the new iPad, also known as the iPad 3, with its fancy-schmancy retina display. I can't answer that because I have an iPad 1. As do I. And I don't have an iPad, so... So if any of our listeners have the new iPad and have tried ActiveGS on it, let us know. Does it look any different? Does it look any better? We're curious. We'd like to share that with our listeners in the June episode. Another thing I haven't gotten to play is The Legend of Grimrock, not Grimlock. I've seen that actually spelled that way many different places online, probably because Grimlock was a famous Transformer being one of the Dinobots. But this is The Legend of Grimrock. It's a PC game that just came out through Steam for $15. And it looks like an entirely original game, monsters, dungeon, etc. But the gameplay style is eerily reminiscent of Dungeon Master, a classic Apple II game where you're exploring a dungeon from a first-person perspective. You're able to turn 90 degrees and move in one tile segments, left, right, forward, or backward. So basically, every single room and part of the maze is a square. And that's the unit in which you're exploring the dungeon. Uh, I would buy this game if I had a machine on which to play it. I mean, I have a Mac which can run Windows, and I don't have Windows installed. I'm not going to be virtualizing it anytime soon but i would certainly like to try grimrock and given the kind of game it is it almost seems like it's something that would work on ios or some other platform hmm looks kind of cool yeah i'll say i was a big fan of the uh the ftl dungeon master games so uh definitely be picking this one up i actually was not i had dungeon master and just found it kind of dull having Hmm. to select a rock from my inventory and then select the monster to throw it. It just seemed kind of a cumbersome interface, but I think 
I've matured as a gamer, and I think gaming interfaces have matured. So I'm curious to revisit the experience through a modern interpretation, such as The Legend of Grimrock. And I just thought that if you're going to have a game that's occurring in real time, which Dungeon Master was, then it made more sense for the interface to be more interactive. I loved turn-based role-playing games. Apple II role-playing game The Magic Candle absolutely loved it. And that was entirely menu-driven, but it was also turn-based. And I, I just found Dungeon Master to be a weird medley that didn't work for me. Yeah, I, I know what you're talking about. I think it was kind of an early experiment. I Personally, it worked well for me, but I could see where somebody might be frustrated by that. So, David, you don't have any real PC gaming interest or Xbox or just, just your iPod? Yeah, I, um, I have a Nintendo GameCube and I have a Super Nintendo and a few games for both of them, but I don't really have time to play them. So even when you're gaming, you're a retro because, I mean, the GameCube, the GameCube came out, if I recall correctly, in 2001, which was 11 years ago now. Yeah, and, and I, didn't even, I didn't even get it until, I think, 2006 or 7. It was a birthday present, I think. So after the Wii came out, somebody gave you a used GameCube. Well, <laughs> beggars can't be choosers. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, all those systems are great. I, I only put my GameCube in storage because the Wii is backward compatible. The Wii U, Nintendo's new system coming out this fall, will not play GameCube games. So at that point, I might retire the Wii and have the Wii U and the GameCube up and running side by side because I want to have access to my GameCube games. And also, my GameCube can do something that the Wii and the Wii U cannot, which is play Game Boy games because I have the adapter for that. Oh, yeah, the Game Boy player. Exactly. And I remember I once spent an entire evening... A lady friend and I, we were going to watch a movie, and I said, hey, we have, you know, a half hour to kill. Let's pop in this Game Boy Color game I have, hook it up to the TV through the GameCube. And that game was Shadowgate, which is an Apple II classic. Three hours later, we look up and we're like, oh, my God, the entire evening is gone. Wow, nice. Yeah, there was no movie that night, but the two of us just had so much fun playing Shadowgate together. It's not even a two-player game, but it's just a classic point-and-click puzzle that worked really well and being able to put that up on the big screen was a fantastic experience and that's one of the things i love about that game boy adapter Let's see there is somebody else out there who loves role-playing games more than any of us this is a gentleman named chester bolingbroke i read an interview with him in game informer magazine published by my former employer gamestop he has a website called crpgaddict.blogspot.com that is computer role-playing game. On this blog, he is documenting his experience playing every single DOS or Windows role-playing game that was released from the beginning of time through 2003. Oh, I saw that. Yeah. Where did you come across it? Um, I think at one point I was there was the the guy that played all the, the entire Ultima series. Oh yeah. Uh, and blog, and I think he mentioned this other guy doing everything. Yeah, because there was the Blogging Ultima series that you just referred that's, to. and That's the one, yeah. And you were working on Blogging Infocom, and this guy is blogging everything. <laughs> well, good luck to him. Yeah, he did a blog post back in January saying that he had to take time off, but then he realized two things. One is he actually missed role-playing games. And second, when he took time off from computer role-playing games, he wasn't rededicating that time to a more productive outlet. He was still wasting time. He was doing it playing stuff like Words with Friends. <laughs> so I realized, oh, this actually isn't more productive, and I'm not going to blog about it. So why don't I just 
waste time doing something that I can blog about. So now he's back and he's playing games again. And even though he said it's all Windows and DOS games, a lot of those games are the same that we grew up playing on the Apple II, like Bard's Tale, Wizardry, Ultima. So there's definitely a lot of overlap. He has some extensive Google spreadsheets that list all the games he's played or is going to play and how he scores them. He came up with his own, as far as I know, it's his own ranking system called Gimlet, which is short for the Game Innovation, Merriment, Likeability, and Engagement Test. It's 10 criteria. He rates each one on a scale of 1 to 10. And some of those criteria are uh, game world, character creation, encounters and foes, economy, gameplay. And so each game gets a score that aggregates anywhere from 0 to 100. And this is an supposedly objective scale that he can apply to every game. He doesn't necessarily finish each game, but he does play it for, I think, at least six hours. And he has finished quite a few of them. And what I love about this on one of his blog posts, actually, I think his very first one explaining what he was going to be doing, he says, I really don't have time for this. I'm far too busy being a fat 20-something guy who lives with his mom in her basement and <laughs> doesn't have a job and works at not, at 7-Eleven. But then he goes on to say, actually, that's the stereotype. I'm in my late 30s. I'm top of my field. I make a good living, work 14 hours a day at several, several different jobs, live in a nice house with my wife, have pets. I exercise 10 hours a week, and I have plenty of work and travel that I do. So I thought that was kind of funny to take what we expect from somebody who's going to play every RPG ever and just throw it in our face. Not that people like us have those stereotypes. Not at all. No, we're, we're the people who have been fighting those stereotypes. But he does have a list of rules that he follows, though. Oh, like what? Well, he, he says, one, Wikipedia's list is my Bible. So it looks like he's going to be, um, he's just going to be playing games that are on uh, Wikipedia. Only PC RPGs. He says he's not going to frig around with C64 or Apple II emulators. Uh, he's not going to be using hints or cheats or walkthroughs. And he doesn't have to win every game, but he, he must at least make a sincere effort to play it. Mm-hmm. And he will buy the game if it's still available commercially. It's funny that he says he won't play Apple II games because he is playing games that originally came out for the Apple II and were ported to other systems like Akalabeth, sometimes known as Ultima Zero. It was released with an Ultima collection for DOS or Windows in 1998. And so through that, he was able to play Akalabeth, although almost everybody associates it with being an Apple II game. He even played Wasteland, which a sequel is coming out later this year via Kickstarter because I thought Wasteland was just an Apple II or maybe a C64 game as well, but Wikipedia says it also came out for DOS and Macintosh, so he played the DOS version. And this isn't all nostalgia for him. He never played Wasteland to begin with, so he was pleasantly surprised to discover this great game he'd never heard of before. Well, I think that's just about the end of our gaming tribute. We apologize for anybody who came to this podcast looking for a serious discussion. A few more news items, though, before we move on. Back in January, a blogger who calls himself Lucchese, Lucchese, posted about Project Walter. Now, this is a Parallax Scribbler S2 robot that he has programmed to take logo commands uh, input from an Apple II, um, and then this thing moves around in real life just like a, the turtle would on the screen. It, it has two modes, uh, Walter in logo mode and Walter in direct mode, and it looks like it communicates through a serial port on this thing, um, but he has um, instructions here for how to add a, a Bluetooth to serial port converter so that you, you don't have to have a, a cable running from your Apple II to this, to the, to Walter to move it around. 
So I thought that was kind of cool. Um, and he introduced it back in January. It looks like that with this update from April 25th, he's, he's finished it. You can download the software and buy one of these, these Parallax Scribbler 2 robots from parallax.com. It's $129.99 and start having fun with your Apple II and logo and the robot. You know, between this guy, Peter Neubauer, and James Littlejohn, I'm very nervous that we're on the verge of the robot apocalypse. Right. This is Skynet. This is how Skynet really got started. And it'll be running on ProDOS. Now, he does note here that Walter is not an interpreter, so it does not accept logo commands directly, for example, forward 200. Instead, it accepts interpreted commands in a specific format, which you can find in the protocol specification document. He has tested it on several versions, uh, FMS Logo, which is the, a free Windows package, Apple Logo 2 from 1984, Apple Logo from 1983, and Terrapin Logo version 1.0 from 1981. And if you decide to do this, he, he has all the instruction files in Apple II uh, disk image uh, format and the software. Wow, that's quite the extensive package he's assembled. I think this is a gentleman who may have attended Mount Kira Fest a couple of years ago when it was held in Australia. Well, it's cool to see new Apple II hardware peripherals being developed like that. I mean, I don't know if this is a peripheral in the sense of an expansion card, but people doing Apple II hardware-based projects on the other side of the world in Australia. That's really neat. Yeah, it's definitely a cool hardware hack. Hmm. Yeah. I mean, it not only is it controlling the robot um, by logo, but he's also got this neat... Um, bluetooth adapter he's got two pictures of it one where it appears to be connected to a super serial card on a 2e and the other picture is where it's connected directly to the uh, printer port on a 2gs so i think that's pretty interesting too that he's made this uh, serial to bluetooth converter now david i probably should have asked this earlier but assuming you don't use your apple too much nowadays for games and you probably aren't much of a uh, robot enthusiast what do you use your apple II for uh funnily enough i i do actually play the games on it um, I was playing the, uh, the lead light, lead light RPG game that came out recently. And, um, of course I, I, I still love, uh, fiddling around with, uh, Applesoft basic and I'm, I'm getting better at assembly language too. So it's just dibble dabble, all sorts of things really. Are you going to be releasing any software products for the Apple II? Um, I had talked about writing a, uh, a Unix-like operating system for the Apple IIe, and I had spent a lot of time um, putting together the hardware that I thought that I'd need to support it, uh, the clock card, um, the RamWorks extended memory card, uh, the mouse card for interrupts, and so on. So uh, that project has gone on the back burner because of this book, but I think that once the book is done, I'll, um, I'll get back to work and, and I'll see what I can do. Oh, that'd be great. I know you can't make it to Kansas Fest. If you could, we'd love to see you enter the HackFest competition. In lieu of that, keep an eye out for the Retro Challenge, which is held every summer. Oh, yeah. I did that back in 2009. Um, I didn't win, but I, I think I got some sort of honorable mention. I, I wrote a snake game for the Apple II, and uh, what I had wanted to do, but I wasn't able to make it happen, was have it be a, a two-player game where uh, the two apples would connect with a Super Serial card. But unfortunately, I was not able to uh, add that feature. Did you ever release the product that you did write? Oh, yeah, of course. It's it's on my blog. It's uh, all in AppleSoft. Oh, cool. And that's at MacGooey.com? Right. Cool. You know, speaking of classic Apple II games, Mike, last month when we had Brian Peachy on the show, we talked all about his extensive YouTube game reviews. I don't recall that we actually talked about the two games that he wrote and released earlier this year. I didn't know he had. 
Yeah, he wrote Applesoft Action, which is his very first game ever, and then Dogfighters of Mars. Both are games that he has shot and displayed on YouTube, and you can download the disc images for free, and there will be links to that in the show notes. We're sorry we didn't mention it earlier, Brian. But it's really cool that somebody who just loved playing games so much took the time to write them. I know that was my inspiration as a kid growing up playing Nintendo and the Magic Candle on the Apple II. I went to college saying, I want to be a game programmer, and that totally didn't work out. But, you know, if I had been able to make that living on the Apple II, I probably would have stuck with it. And it's nice to see that Brian is pursuing that passion, even if it isn't professionally like I thought I would. Yeah, he says in his CSA2 post, uh, it's nothing special and it took less than a week to code, but here is Dogfighters of Mars written in low-res graphics mode in all its pixelated glory. <laughs> he says, uh, colors look best on an Apple II GS, but it plays fine on an Apple II as well. Hit detection is pretty lousy near the Serpent Monster, but I got lazy. <laughs> it sounds like the kind of game I would have tried to write for my TI-82 calculator when I was in high school. One last news item this month, and that is drifting off topic. No, wait. It's actually Drift, a disc that was recently released for the Apple II from Crew with contributions by Antoine Vignau, who we had on the show recently, Wade Clark, and Melissa Barron, who's also been on the show. Mike, what exactly is this? Is this a, a demo disc? Is it a music disc? It's four songs that were created with uh, uh, the Electric Duet and released, and you load this. The, you can load this uh, disc image in your emulator or convert it to a real disc and load it into your Apple II. And each one lasts for you know a minute or two. Um, it's it's just a collection of Apple II music, and it's pretty cool. And um, if you listen to our Brutal Deluxe 20th Anniversary Celebration show, um, you heard Antoine talking about some of the technical details that went on behind uh, the making of the disc. Now, the screenshot on a2central.com is monochromatic, but if you go to the actual webpage for this disc, it looks like it actually is in color? Yes, it is. Cool. Now, I ask if it's in color. Obviously, there's a visual component, but it's not necessarily a a, a visual demo of the sort. It says on CSA2, it's actually using the electric duet player, and this decision was made early on to keep things familiar for potential musicians. Yep. And it looks like they released this at the Pixel Jam 2012 demo party. Hmm. Maybe we should learn more about demo parties. I think we should. What's it worth to you? Hold on to your wallet as we look at the latest Apple pickings. I've been looking at the prices of Apple II and Apple II Plus systems in the past two or three weeks, and I've been surprised uh, to see how high of prices they're fetching. Um, well into the $200 and $300 ranges for Apple II Plus, and just under $1,000 for original two systems. Under 1000 Wow. Yeah. <laughs> they come, well, they've come down a little bit. I mean, last year they were going for two or $3,000 for original two systems. Yes, if you find these prices exorbitant, then I don't think you're spending much time on eBay. <laughs> what about you, Mike? What have you found lately? I um, haven't had a whole lot of time to dig around on eBay. The one thing I did find, and of course this is our hat tip to the Apple III users out there, um, we've talked about John Woodall before. His eBay seller ID is Vintage Micros, and he is kind of selling off his remaining Apple III hardware. Uh, I guess he wants to focus more on his Lisa collection. 
and supporting those machines. So right now, uh, he's selling a lot of Apple III logic boards, uh, and he's saying they're, they're being sold as a clearance sale. There were a lot of four of them. Two of them, two of them are sold. I bought one of them. Um, and they're going for $60 a piece right now. He says they're guaranteed not to work. Um, but if you need them for parts, if you want a troubleshooting project, um, that's, that's a fairly good price for an Apple III motherboard, I think. I'm sorry. Did you mean it when you said they're guaranteed not to work? Yes, they're all they're all non-functional in some way. He's, like I said, he's tired of I don't know if he's tired of it or just wants to focus on the the Apple Lisa stuff. But uh, these these do not work. And how much are they going for? Uh, Sixty dollars a piece. Huh. Is that a fair price? Um, if if you're if you're looking for a project or or you need parts, then yeah, I'd say so. Considering um, if you just bought the chips by themselves, they'd be selling for probably ten or fifteen bucks a piece. Hmm. At the time of this recording, it looks like he started off with four of these logic boards for sale, and he sold two of them, at not only at the $60 price you mentioned, but with an additional $11.17 for shipping from South Carolina. Right. What about you, Ken? Have you been snooping around on eBay lately? Well, kind of like the Apple III logic board, I found an Apple IIGS ROM 3, and it claims to be a prototype. I am not a hardware guy, but he does have pictures on his website or rather on his eBay listing, of an actual ROM 3 and the prototype ROM 3 side-by-side so that those with an eye for detail can see the difference. Uh, Let's see. Let's see, which is which here? Obviously, they're not that different. I I don't know anything about this stuff. Yeah, I don't either. There was a comment on uh, the CSA2 thread about this that um, this is probably just a test machine, you know, and stuff got swapped in and out as they tested various equipment in there rather than an actual prototype. Hmm. So you think it probably functions identical with an actual 2GS ROM 3? Well, he says it does, yeah. Yeah, even the sticker on the back says it's the same model number. Right. Yeah, it looks like it includes a keyboard, the mouse, a copy of the EEPROM info, a recent printout, a copy of the Apple IIGS install disks for System 6.0.1 and a power cord. Hmm. So this little kit will set you back $950. Ouch. Yeah. Still, it's you know kind of cool that you might have something unique. People will look at it and they'll, you'll, they'll think it's an Apple IIGS, but ah, you've never seen an Apple IIGS like this before. <laughs> That's one that looks and acts just like an Apple IIGS. Right. But then you open it up and, well... It's different. While I'm looking at the ROM 3 prototype, uh, it reminds me of those uh, Mark Twain models that we used to see. Yeah, when I first saw this listing with the word prototype in it, I'm like, ooh, does he mean the, the ROM 4? And I'm like, oh, this is just a ROM 3. No, it's far less interesting. The, the ROM 4 might be pretty well documented by now. We know enough people who actually have them, but it's still strange and f- exotic enough that if one ever show up on eBay, I bet it would fetch quite a bit. This one, I don't know if it's going to sell. Yeah, I think if that were ROM 4, it would have been somebody would have bought that immediately for $950. I think I would have. Yeah. See, I also found a, a game on eBay because that seems to be what my mind gravitates toward, whether it's news or auctions. This is a Wizardry 1 Proving Grounds, or as the title calls it, Proving Gorons <laughs> of the Mad Overlord. Oh, yeah. Uh, it is complete with box, and he advertises it as running on the Apple II and the Apple III, which, you know, is true of most Apple II software, isn't it? 
Uh, as long as it's 48K Apple II compliant software, it'll run on the Apple III. Right, so I guess he's just trying to expand his target audience. But Wizardry was written in Apple Pascal, and, and Apple Pascal requires a language system, so I don't think that would work out in 48K. I don't know what the minimum requirements for Wizardry were, so... Yeah, I don't know if this guy has tested it, but he says Apple II, Apple II Plus, Apple II GS, Apple III. Uh, looks like it's complete with box, but the description is kind of sparse, and there's only one photo. But he does show the box, the floppy disk in sleeve, and what looks like the manual. So that will set you back 130 bucks for a buy-it-now price. The time on this auction is only one day right now, so it'll end before the podcast airs, which probably means he's going to relist it, because it doesn't look like it's going to sell at 130 Well, maybe someone will make him an offer. It is a neat thing to have. I have this, and in fact, I have the original Macintosh version, and it's neat to have just for the box art and the uh, manuals that come with it. Yeah, I'm looking at a screenshot of the Wizardry box, the original, and it says disc for Apple II. 2 plus, uh, 2E and 3, DOS 3.3, 1 disk drive, 48K. So there you go. I guess it works. Okay. Our CRPG addict, who we spoke about earlier, has played this game, and he went into extensive detail about uh, not only the sense of accomplishment he got for finally finishing the first wizardry ever, but also a little bit of a letdown at, huh, it was easier than I thought. <laughs> Again, this is another game I played on the 8-bit Nintendo, and I remember it being extremely challenging. That's what that's. I've never played the Wizardry series, but I, I heard, I kept hearing from all my friends how difficult that game was. Yeah, apparently it inspired people to cheat. Um, I inherited a whole bunch of uh, Apple II software and manuals, including Wizardry, and uh, apparently the guy had resorted to using a disc editor because uh-huh. there were all these notes and printouts that he had made of, of all the uh, hex offsets and, and byte counts and whatnot for uh, updating his stats. Mm-hmm. Well, I know there was there were quite a few articles in, in Computist about going in and, and modifying your character and um, mapping and things like that to make the game more playable. I wonder if Wasteland 2, which is coming out later this year for uh, PC and Mac and probably other systems, if it will have a way to import your character from the Apple II version. Well, if there isn't, Carrington's going to write one. Because that used to be a popular feature back in the day. You finish an RPG and then you get to go into the sequel with all the characters that you had from before. That only recently made a comeback with Mass Effect for the Xbox 360, but it used to be popular with Magic Candle, Wizardry, and a bunch of other games. Yep. I think the biggest challenge would be um, for most users who had their, their Wasteland characters on five and a quarter inch discs actually getting getting the data onto a PC or a Mac because you can't just plug your disc 2 drive into your PC or your Macintosh. That would be a challenge, but I think it would be an amazing feature to advertise whether or not anybody actually used it. Yep. <laughs> it is compatible if you can get the data over. <laughs> That's right. That part we'll leave to you. Right. There's another game that was put on our outline for this episode, probably by our silent partner, Andy, because none of us hosts can remember talking about this or finding <laughs> it. I guess that's sort of a game in and of itself. Who put this here? Who moved my cheese? <laughs> that's right. Uh, this game is The Wizard and the Princess, now available on eBay for a buy-it-now price of $300. Looks like it is brand new in box and sealed, never before opened. I had never heard of this game, nor had Mike or David, but it turns out that this is the second game ever released by Online Systems, later known as Sierra. This is their first game after Mystery House and is a prelude to King's Quest in both story and concept, according to Wikipedia. I think this was a. I think this is a re-release. I don't think this is the original. 
because if you look at the, the screenshot of the backs at the bottom, it says Sierra Online Incorporated rather than Online Systems. Oh, interesting. Yeah. I wonder if that probably devalues it to a degree. Right, and I, I, I never, and I never trust the new in box seal kind of a thing because I mean it's easy to to go out and get boxes resealed. Yeah, any shrink wrap machine, you know, just take some plastic and a hair dryer, and you're done. Right, but I, I, yeah, I don't think this is the original release of this game. And it looks like it may have been re-shrink wrapped. Obviously, I don't want to accuse anybody of false advertising, no. but no, of course not. Yeah, you know, there, there's really no way to tell, and. But, but for three hundred for three hundred dollars, you know what you're buying here. If you go to the the Wikipedia entry on Wizard and the Princess, you, there's a screenshot of the ri- the original box that says online systems, and it looks nothing like what's being sold. Well, there you have it. Well, it seems that games infiltrate almost every aspect of our discussion this month. I doesn't seem that we're going to be able to break this cycle in which we now find ourselves. So perhaps we should just call it a day. Well, of course, it's fitting that you know, we would have somebody on that doesn't actually play many games. <laughs> Sorry, oh. David. <laughs> we probably should have done this last month when Brian Peachy was on Game Critic Extraordinaire and World Record Holder. I'm just oh. teasing you, David. <laughs> Does he play games? <laughs> <laughs> just a little. Oh, I think this might be the first time we will have... Well, no, we've had published authors on the show before because David Grealish spoke to us back in January. And in fact, he was speaking with Steve Weirich, who's publishing a book. That's right. But I am very much looking forward to my copy of the new Apple II User's Guide. And again, I am fairly confident that we'll be able to find a way to get your product, David, onto the Kansas Fest Vendor Fair show floor. Well, thank you very much. Excellent. Yeah, I'm definitely going to be buying this book. Even if the title implies the new Apple II User's Guide, like you said, it's aimed at all three segments. And didn't you say in your press release that this is the first original book published about the Apple II in 20 years? I said 10 years, but yeah, I mean, it, I can't think of any book that's been published only mm-hmm. about the Apple II and forever. What do you think was the last book before yours? Probably something silly about the Apple II GS, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> I would think it would be the, the 2C Plus, actually. That was the last Apple II released. Oh, yeah, it might have been. And of course, there's always Juice GS, which is coming out every quarter. That doesn't count. No. Nor do the concentrate PDFs, because those aren't really books. But anyway, yeah, it's been great having you on the show, David. Anything you, you want to plug about Mac GUI or anything you want our listeners to know about or check out? Yeah, I guess I guess just the main thing is that um, I'm, I'm publishing this Apple II book, and so if there are listeners out there who haven't discovered uh, Mac GUI Vault yet, the uh, online archive that I manage, uh, I suggest that you check it out. It's... Uh, macgui.com slash vault and um, it's for both Apple II and Macintosh users. You'll find thousands of files, uh, photos, there's a, a knowledge base of text and PDF files, and then of course the Usenet archive, which stretches back to uh, the early 1980s. So, uh, yeah, that, that's what I'd like to plug. Well, given such an exhaustive archive, I imagine that you're the perfect person to write this book. I can't wait to read it. Are you still um, making available the DVDs that people could order from you through the mail? Oh, yes. That that offer has not expired yet. Um, Do you want to talk about that a little bit? One of the goals of MacWee Vault is to uh, preserve all of this uh, history and all of this information. And I thought, well, it seems like a great way to do it would be to um, make a DVD available of it. And unfortunately, my first attempt was way too successful. I basically said, um, 
hey, just give me your address and, and I'll mail out this DVD. Well, I ended up getting requests from all over the world um, and so many such that it would have cost me, you know, over $100 to mail them all out and, you know, a lot of time to coordinate it all. So um, that didn't work so well, but I was left <laughs> with a stack of DVDs and I, I did send a few of them out. But uh, this time I've got my act together and I'm saying uh, if you send me a, a SACE, uh, a self-addressed stamped envelope, then I will uh, mail the DVDs back to you. And, and that has worked out a lot better. And I'm still getting requests uh, every now and again. Cool. Can we download disk images of these DVDs, like ISO files? Um, no. <laughs> because the bandwidth costs would be ridiculous. It's it's the, it's a three disc set, so it'd be you know uh, over ten gigabytes. So um, no, I I think it's more efficient to uh, mail them out. Hmm. Well, you know, my dial-up connection wasn't planning on doing anything for the next couple of years anyway. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> cool. Well, it's been lovely having you on the show, David. We look forward to your continued contributions to the community and to giving you lots of money for your book. <laughs> well, That's thank right. you. Yeah. Thanks for the encouragement. Yeah, I hope it sells really well. All right, we will see you around. All right. All right. Thanks, Thanks David. David. Thanks. Talk to you later, Mike. See you again. Bye. This has been the Open Apple Podcast. Find more episodes, read our blog, or send feedback by visiting us on the web at www.open-apple.net. Looks like you also found a game on eBay, Mike. No. Well, what what's this Wizard and the Princess new in box? It's not mine. And I did see that that Andy modified our spreadsheet this morning, so maybe that's his. <sighs> yeah. So all those times that we couldn't remember putting things on the spreadsheet, it was Andy. <laughs> I I'm, think so. Yeah. Oh my god, I'm gonna kill him. <laughs>